The following Marx Daily Apple articles were written by Marxism and are narrated by Brock Armstrong. Welcome to Marx Daily Apple Best of 2014, Volume 1 Food and Nutrition. Featuring Do You Really Need to Eat Vegetables to Be Healthy? Is Gently Cooked Food Better for You? Why the omega-3, omega-6 ratio may not matter after all. And is processed meat actually bad for you? Do you really need to eat vegetables to be healthy? The idea that vegetables are an essential part of the healthy diet has been hammered into our collective consciousness by every authority out there. Parents, teachers, scientists, government health experts all stress the importance of eating your veggies. Problem is, they also told us that butter would kill us, margarine would save us, animal protein would give us cancer, and animal fats would give us heart disease. They said we should jog for an hour a day, three days a week, that deadlifts would hurt our backs, and that we need to wear shoes with good arch support. Basically, conventional wisdom gets it wrong an awful lot of the time, so what should we think about the CW regarding vegetables? It's a fairly common query I receive from readers. Do you really need to eat vegetables, or plant matter in general, to be healthy? Yes. Yes, you do. Maybe not a huge amount necessarily, but you do need some. With that out of the way, allow me to address some of the more pertinent questions I receive from readers. See, MDA readers are an astute bunch. They don't just send me one-line emails with questions in all caps. They send questions, and then they proceed to lay out very persuasive arguments. Let's look at some of them. What about traditional cultures that ate little to no plants or vegetables and were healthy, like dot dot dot? The Inuit. While they ate a high-fat, high-protein, low-carb diet consisting of the fat and meat from seal, walrus, whale, caribou, fish, and other wild game, the Inuit actually utilized a wide variety of plant foods including berries, sea vegetables, lichens, and rhizomes. They made tea from pine needles, which are high in vitamin C and polyphenols. The Maasai Milk, meat, and blood were the high-fat, low-carb staples of the Maasai diet, particularly that of the male warriors. But it's not all they ate. The Maasai often traded for plant foods like bananas, yams, and taro too, and they cooked their meat with antiparasitic spices, drank bitter, read tannin and polyphenol-rich, herb tea on a regular basis, and used dozens of plants as medicines. Or the Sami. The reindeer herders of the Scandinavian north, the Sami people ate a low-carb, high-protein, high-fat diet of meat, fish, and reindeer milk. They also gather wild plant foods, particularly berries and mushrooms. Finland's forests produce 500 million kilograms of berries and over 2 billion kilograms of mushrooms each year, sometimes even feeding their reindeer hallucinogenic mushrooms to produce psychoactive urine. Plants played small but important roles in their diets, not as a source of calories necessarily, but as a source of micronutrients, plant polyphenols, and medicinal compounds. We can't know that they would have gotten the results they did without the plants. Animal foods provide all the micronutrients a person needs. Animal products include some of the most nutrient-dense foods available. They're our best and often only source of vitamin A, retinol, DHA and EPA, and vitamin B12, as well as lesser-known nutrients like choline, creatine, and carnosine. 
But a diet devoid of vegetables and other plants will likely be low in certain nutrients that we need, like betaine, a vital liver-supporting nutrient. The best source is spinach. Potassium, important electrolyte and regulator of blood pressure. The best sources are avocados, leafy greens, citrus fruits, and bananas. Meats contain potassium, but you have to capture the juices to get it. Magnesium. Involved in hundreds of crucial physiological functions, the best sources are leafy greens like spinach and chard. Fermentable fiber. The best sources are plants. Whoa, whoa, fiber? What is this, the AHA? No, I've questioned the merits of insoluble fiber-deriven fecal hypertrophy in the past, and I remain puzzled at the relentless pursuit of toilet bowl blockages, but I strongly support the consumption of fermentable fiber. If you're convinced of the importance of a healthy gut microbiome populated with happy, vibrant gut flora, and you should be by now, you can't ignore their food requirements. They need fermentable fiber to survive and tend to your immune system, and the best way to provide that is to eat plants. It's also easy to miss out on nutrients like folate, if you don't eat offal, and calcium if you don't eat dairy or small bony fish. Plus, and this is an important point, we evolved eating wild animals. Wild animal meat and fat comes loaded with antioxidant compounds from all the wild plant matter they eat. Grass-fed beef, the more easily attainable alternative to wild meat, is also higher in B vitamins, beta-carotene, look for the yellow fat, vitamin E, alpha-tocopherol, vitamin K, and trace minerals like magnesium, calcium, and selenium. Unless you're hunting game or eating salad bar beef, what Joel Saladin calls grass-fed beef, eating vegetables, herbs, and spices with your meal will help emulate the ancestral steak dinner. What about people who just hate vegetables or don't like them all the time? Shouldn't we listen to our instincts? I have a sneaking suspicion that the ability to sense nutrients noted in many animal species is also present in people. Like how salt-deficient cattle will gravitate towards the salt lick, maybe some people just don't need that extra hormetic stimulus provided by the plant, or their bodies are letting them know by making vegetables taste bad. Maybe they're so darn optimal that they only require the basic vitamins, minerals, and macronutrients to maintain their health. But remember... The body is kind of a dumb instrument. It evolved in an environment where little mistakes could be very costly. A sprained ankle could mean death, destitution, or a limp that never leaves. These days, a sprained ankle means some ice, some elevation, and parking a little closer to the office or grocery store. Eating the wrong plant or the wrong part of the wrong plant might destroy your liver. These days, you just Google plant toxicity. So we're subconsciously hypersensitive to things that may have once posed a threat that we may miss out on some good stuff. Plant toxins, also known as phytonutrients, are one of those things. Carrie already explained how some folks' distaste for bitter plant toxins might be an adaptation from the days when a portion of the available plant food was too dense in toxins and phytonutrients for regular consumption, an adaptive holdover that prevents us from enjoying the extremely healthy, hormetic, moderate levels of plant toxins in cultivated plants. I actually get where these people are coming from. I'll go days where I don't really want green things on my plate, where a salad even a big-ass one, just doesn't appeal to me. I'll also have days where I really don't feel like eating a steak, where a few bites is plenty. 
I tend to listen to my body in these cases. People known as super tasters are particularly sensitive to the bitter compounds in plant foods and generally eat fewer of them as a result. Some research indicates that they may be at a greater risk for certain cancers, while other research indicates that super tasters weigh less with a lower risk of heart disease than normal. However, that's because they're more picky about food and eat less of it in general, not because bitter vegetables are fattening. It's not conclusive either way. The bottom line. Plants complement meat. They make meat taste better, make it healthier by preventing the formation of carcinogens during cooking when you incorporate them into marinades, and reduce the impact of those harmful compounds when you consume them alongside. Cruciferous vegetables are a classic example. That broccoli you're eating with your steak contains phytonutrients that reduce the potential mutagenicity, cancer-causing properties, of heterocyclic amines in well-done meat. Vegetables also complement meat. They notice when meat has had its hair and nails done, or when it's lost weight. I can't tell you how many times I've heard Kale say the words, Have you been working out? to a lamb shank. Even if they're not always totally sincere, they obviously care about making meat feel good about itself. That's awesome. Harmony on our plate is always good. If you hate veggies and refuse to eat them, fine. You can get most of the minerals and vitamins elsewhere, though it's tough and some spinach would take care of most of them. And using supplements is an option. But if I were you, I would at least strongly consider drinking tea, eating phytonutrient-rich fruits like berries, eating phytonutrient-rich legume extracts like dark chocolate, and using a lot of different spices and herbs in your cooking. These won't have a large caloric or carb load, but they will offer nutrients you simply can't obtain from animals, and they provide the largest plant bang for your buck. Before you throw in the towel, be sure to try lots of different plants. There are thousands of edible and medicinal ones out there, with tens of thousands of recipes and preparation instructions available right this instant, just a few keystrokes away. You'll find something you like if you keep looking. Safeguard your health with the most comprehensive all-in-one nutritional supplement on the planet. Primal Nutrition's Damage Control Master Formula. Forget mixing and matching with multiple bottles of individual agents. Now you can just take a single packet of the most potent and optimally balanced multivitamin, multimineral, antioxidant formula available on the market. You'll enjoy complete immune system, cardiovascular, memory, nerve, bone, liver, and anti-stress support. And much more. With 51 research-proven ingredients, Damage Control Master Formula helps you combat oxidative damage in every cell and every system in your body and shore up any dietary shortcomings with complete protection. Order Damage Control Master Formula today at PrimalBlueprint.com and check out the incredible free shipping offer for our convenient and custom-designed auto-ship program. Is gently cooked food better for you? As primal eaters, you no doubt have been the recipient of many an email populated with scary studies about the association of meat consumption with various degenerative diseases like cancer, diabetes, and heart disease. Heck, a new one just came out that I'm sure I'll be receiving dozens of times in my inbox. Turns out, controlling for body weight negates the links. And though most of them can be explained by the healthy user effect, the failure to control for other variables and the processed meat versus unprocessed meat dichotomy, a few do appear to suggest a link between certain diseases and eating meat that's been cooked a certain way.
One study found that people who prefer their red meat well done are 8.8 times more likely to get colorectal cancer than people who prefer their meat rare. Another study found that well done meat seems to increase the risk of pancreatic cancer. And a recent review of several different studies found that consumption of well done meat is associated with elevated cancer risks in humans. Cooking isn't bad, of course. It makes food taste better, gives us access to a wider range of foods like starches that would otherwise be indigestible, kills foodborne pathogens, improves the texture of food, meat becomes more tender, fat renders, vegetables soften, and increases the calories we can extract from food. But there's a dark side to cooking. Depending on the methods and ingredients you use and the temperature you apply, cooking can create carcinogenic and toxic compounds and oxidized fat, and these may be involved in some of the diseases studied. It may not be the meat itself, but how we treat the meat. So, what compounds should we be worrying about? Heterocyclic amines. When meat is directly exposed to high temperature, the amino acids, sugars, and creatine within it react to form heterocyclic amines, HCA. In animal studies, HCAs are mutagenic. They provoke harmful DNA mutations, can change gene expression, and cause cancer. Epidemiological studies link HCA intake in humans to many of these same cancers, including cancer of the prostate, pancreas, and colon. Caution appears to be warranted. Advanced glycation end products. When steak is browned, when sugar is caramelized, and when you get a nice crust going on that roast, you're creating advanced glycation end products via the Maillard reaction. Most AGEs actually form endogenously inside our bodies, but dietary AGEs appear to have some negative effects of their own. Dietary AGEs have been shown to drain a person's antioxidant stores, opening them up to an inflammatory cascade that includes insulin resistance and potentially diabetes, while low AGE diets can increase insulin sensitivity in humans. Oxidized lipids. Polyunsaturated fatty acids in meat or in the seed oils used to marinate the meat can become oxidized when exposed to high heat. When eaten, these oxidized fats are incorporated into the circulating lipids, thus increasing the risk of atherosclerosis. The easiest way to minimize your exposure to heat-related toxins is to emphasize gentle cooking methods and de-emphasize higher heat methods. The more abrasive cooking methods include grilling over an open flame, the worst, grilling is consistently associated with higher levels of HCA, pan frying, deep frying, broiling, smoking, searing, blackening, incinerating. Minimize those. Gentler cooking methods include steaming, poaching, boiling, braising, simmering, baking, pressure cooking, crockpotting. Emphasize those because they all limit the formation of HCAs, AGEs, and oxidized lipids. They'll take you most of the way, but there are other variables to tweak, or at least be aware of, for greater protection. Cooking temperature. Most studies indicate that 300 degrees Fahrenheit or 150 degrees Celsius results in minimal HCA formation, even when pan frying. 400 degrees Fahrenheit is when the carcinogens really start accumulating quickly. As for AGAs, watch for browning. That's the Maillard reaction, and it's a good basic indicator of AGE formation. 
creatine content of the meat. The more creatine in meat, the more HCA will be formed. That's why grilled salmon has more HCA than grilled burger, and it's why the mid-90s trend of post-workout creatine monohydrate pancakes resulted in an exponential spike in cancer deaths among weightlifters. (laughs) Okay, that's not true. Saturation of the fat. The more saturated the fat you use to cook, the more resistant it is to oxidation from heat exposure. Highly saturated coconut oil bests mostly polyunsaturated sunflower oil, for example. Same goes for the fat in meat. Ruminant fat is more resistant to oxidation than chicken fat. Antioxidant content of the fat. Some fats come with antioxidants that increase their resistance to heat. Even though it contains ample amounts of polyunsaturated fat, sesame oil is quite resistant to heat because of the antioxidants it bears. Extra virgin olive oil and red palm oil are other examples of good fats high in antioxidants. Antioxidant content of the meat. Pastured animals allowed to eat fresh grass, wild forage, and herbs will effectively produce antioxidant-infused meat with greater oxidative stability than animals raised on concentrated feed. Protective foods consumed with the meal. Certain foods seem to mitigate or even negate the harmful effects of heat-related toxins. Interestingly, many of them appear to confirm the healthfulness of certain cultural traditions— Cruciferous vegetables like broccoli, cauliflower, and bok choy are highly protective against HCA mutagenicity. Maybe that's why steamed broccoli goes so well with steak. Coffee contains polyphenols and fibers that can bind and inhibit HCAs. Maybe that's why an after-dinner espresso or coffee is a common tradition in many cuisines. Red wine polyphenols inhibit carcinogen action in the gut after meat consumption. Maybe that's why red wine tastes so good with red meat. It's actually healthier that way. Chlorella, when taken with or immediately before a meal containing HCA, inhibits its mutagenicity. Maybe that's why I, um, always crave algae with my pork chops? Pretty much any plant food you eat with your meat, especially the colorful ones, will have a favorable impact on carcinogen formation, lipid oxidation, and mutagenicity. Blueberries, beets, salad greens, carrots, tomatoes, apple slices, spices, it's hard to go wrong. They certainly won't hurt. Marinades. Almost uniformly, marinating your meat will reduce the formation of toxic compounds like HCA and AGE, even if you grill it or pan fry it. Use a quality antioxidant-rich fat like olive oil, an acidic medium like citrus juice or vinegar, and some antioxidant-rich flavorings like herbs, peppers, garlic, ginger, and spices like turmeric and cayenne, and you'll probably produce a marinade capable of inhibiting toxic formation. Maybe not completely, maybe a few AGEs or HCAs will slip through, but anything's better than just throwing it on the grill or in the pan naked and dry. For some ideas that will surely help you make your meats healthier and more delicious, try Primal Marinades. The ingredients of a marinade matter. Sugar, for example, will increase the formation of heterocyclic amines, especially when combined with soy sauce. Does that mean any marinade that includes anything sweet is out? No. Using honey, citrus juices, or other whole food sweeteners all appear to reduce HCA formation most likely because of the presence of bioactive compounds, phytonutrients and other antioxidants, in the sweeteners. 
Even brown sugar seems to inhibit HCAs more than table sugar, though not as much as honey. Soy sauce and sugar may even be acceptable components of a marinade just so long as you include something protective like ginger and garlic. As one study found that teriyaki sauce, which contains soy sauce, sugar, garlic, and ginger, reduced HCA formation when used as a marinade. In the same study, Kraft Honey Barbecue Sauce increased HCA formation, probably because it's mostly high-fructose corn syrup. In other words, it's not as simple as saying this ingredient increases the risk because other ingredients can counter or mitigate the effect. A good general rule when making marinades, the more herbs and spices you use, the more protective and better tasting your marinade. Okay, with all that info out of the way, how do we make sense of it? What are some good ground rules we can hew to? Use liquids whenever possible. Water, stock, coffee, wine, even a bit of citrus juice will help reduce the formation of harmful compounds. Generally, any cooking method is made more gentle with the addition of liquid. Keep the temperature low when applying direct heat. Stir-frying, pan-frying, grilling, try to keep the temperature on medium-low to medium. Learn to love rare-to-medium-rare meat and avoid medium-well to well-done meat. Most epidemiological studies linking cooked meat to cancer only found positive associations with well-done meat. Besides, well-done steak is a culinary travesty, and you should really avoid it on principle. Even when pan-frying or grilling, it's usually only the well-done burgers that form a lot of carcinogens. Marinade, marinade, marinade! Plan ahead so that you can soak your meat in one antioxidant-rich medium or another. Even 10 to 15 minutes before cooking can be effective. If you don't have time to marinate your meat, apply spices and herbs to the surface before cooking. Add some chopped garlic or ginger, even garlic powder or ginger powder, to your steaks, some minced thyme or rosemary to your lamb, and cumin and turmeric to your chicken. Or use them all at once. Even black pepper can help. When preparing ground meat, mix the spices and herbs directly into the meat, not just on the surface of your formed burgers. Drink wine, eat broccoli, have espresso, and eat other mitigatory foods alongside your meat. Luckily, people on the primal eating plan aren't just downing charred steak and nothing else. They're eating plenty of plants, too. Regularly make complex curries, tagines, goulashes, and other stews which incorporate all the protective elements in one tasty package. Liquids, spices and herbs, low temperature, gentle cooking. As much as I love a good braised meat, I won't deny the deliciousness of a seared steak or crispy sweet potatoes. Here are a couple cooking tricks I've developed over the years that should reduce toxin formation while allowing you to enjoy crisp browned foods. Searing a steak or cooking a stir-fry? Add a bit of lemon or orange juice mixed with spices and herbs when you turn the meat. The juice and herb mixture will provide moisture and help protect the surface of the meat in contact with the pan. You'll still get some decent browning on one side, and once the meat is done you can let the juice reduce down into a sauce. Extra tip, add a half a cup of really gelatinous bone broth to the liquid to make the reduction even richer. Will this eliminate HCA formation or completely inhibit lipid oxidization? Probably not, but it's way better than just charring the meat dry. 
When making any starchy root dish that involves applying high heat to obtain a crispy exterior, start with pre-cooked tubers. So if you're doing fries, cook the potatoes the day before and keep them in the fridge. Peel them, slice them into a fry shape of your choice, and lightly saute each side in a stable cooking fat like ghee or coconut oil or ghee and coconut oil over a medium heat. Since you don't have to worry about cooking the interior of it, it only takes a couple of minutes to get that nice crust on each side. Your cooking time is reduced by about 80% and the temperature needed is far lower as well. Fewer carcinogens and less lipid oxidization. Ultimately, healthy eating is about striking a balance. You can sear your steaks and live long, just don't do it excessively or eschew healthy plant foods alongside them. You can throw some chicken thighs on the grill, but to mitigate the risks, just make sure they're marinated. Hey Primal Podcast listeners, have you been wanting and waiting to take your health or your clients to peak levels? Then it's time to enroll in the Primal Blueprint Expert Certification. Register for the certification program today at primalblueprint.com and gain immediate access to the course materials and educational library. Why the omega-3, omega-6 ratio may not matter after all. When it comes to omega-6 fats, the quick and dirty soundbite resonating throughout the ancestral health community has been, omega-6 fats are inflammatory, omega-3s are anti-inflammatory. Years ago, I wrote a post saying essentially the same thing, that an excessive intake of omega-6s and inadequate intake of omega-3s predispose us to an exaggerated inflammatory response. This sounds right. And the huge discrepancy between the estimated ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 fats in ancestral human diets, 1 to 3, 1 to 2, or even 1 to 1, and the ratio in modern diets ranging from 1 to 25 to 1 to 10 just looks pathological. Then, bringing up the rear, you've got Bill Landis's work, showing that human populations with low levels of omega-3s and higher levels of omega-6s in their tissues are at greater risk for many diseases like heart disease. It all seems clear-cut, no? Well, kinda. While my general recommendation remains to limit omega-6 fats from vegetable oils, there's much more to the omega-6 story. First, let's examine the main argument for the importance of omega-3s and omega-6 ratio. The main argument for the importance of the balanced dietary ratio is that too much linoleic acid, the primary omega-6 fat, increases inflammatory precursors above and beyond the physiological norm, leading to an exacerbated inflammatory response, a general state of systemic inflammation, and the development of the various diseases with an inflammatory root. Here's how it's supposed to work. Linoleic acid converts to arachidonic acid, AA, a precursor for inflammatory cytokines. 
Alpha-linoleic acid, ALA, plant omega-3, converts to the anti-inflammatory precursors, EPA and DHA, the omega-3 fatty acids we usually associate with fish oil. Both of these conversions occur along the same rate-limited enzymatic pathway, which means they compete for a spot. If we eat too much linoleic acid, the story goes our tissue levels of AA will spike and predispose us to excess inflammation and all the disease fallout that entails. Actually, increasing dietary linoleic acid doesn't really increase the tissue level of arachidonic acid. Instead, since both linoleic acid and ALA use the same conversion pathway, an excess of linoleic acid does inhibit the conversion of ALA into EPA and DHA, leading to potential deficiencies in the latter nutrients and promoting an inflammatory environment. If you don't eat performed EPA and DHA in the form of seafood, pastured animal products, and or supplements to make up for it. That's right, people whom a fish dinner means battered and fried tilapia sticks are at risk of an inflammatory omega-6, omega-3 ratio, but people following a primal way of eating are probably safe. Just eating some salmon, sardines, mussels, and pastured eggs can undo a lot of the damage caused when linoleic acid hogs the conversion pathway. Linoleic acid, however, is not directly increasing tissue omega-6 levels. It appears as if the problem with low ratios of omega-3 to omega-6 is the lack of omega-3, not so much the omega-6. In studies that replace saturated fat with omega-6 fats, the only ones that show benefit are those that also include omega-3 with the omega-6s, while those that replace SFA with just omega-6 increase the risk of death. As long as you're eating enough fish and other seafood, pastured animals, and their fat, and eggs, and or high-quality fish oil supplements, whole food sources of omega-6 shouldn't increase inflammation. The ratio is a helpful way to monitor your omega-3 and omega-6 intake, but it's not a physiological law. That's not our only issue with linoleic acid, though. Where do we get our omega-6 fats? No, not you reading this, not the guy who asks that his eggs be cooked in butter or olive oil at the diner, not the lady who shudders at the sight of one of those three-gallon Costco jugs of corn oil. Where do most people living in industrialized nations get their omega-6s? You know, normal people. Americans get almost 70% of their PUFA, mostly omega-6, from oils, shortening, and margarine, and just 6% from beans, seeds, and nuts. 1% from eggs, and 13% from meat, poultry, and fish, as of 2004. So, when we talk about omega-6 intake, we're really talking about french fries cooked in vegetable oil, packaged pastries made with shortening, and processed high-sugar, high-vegetable-fat junk food intake. If most of our omega-6 is coming from the linoleic acid found in cooking oils and processed baked goods, most of the omega-6 we're eating is highly oxidized, rancid, and maybe even worse. In one study, just 20 frying sessions were enough to drastically alter sunflower oil, oxidizing the fat and creating cyclic fatty acid monomers, which, when eaten, affect fatty acid oxidization, carbohydrate metabolism, and liver enzymes. Dietary linoleic acid that has been oxidized via heat has been shown to directly lead to atherosclerosis. 
To determine how often most restaurants actually change their frying oil out for new oil, I looked at a topic called How Often Do You Clean Your Deep Fryer in a popular online forum for diner owners. Responses varied from every day to weekly, with some topping off their oil as they went and relying mostly on filtration of solids. Either way, it's not very reassuring. The susceptibility to oxidization may be why diets high in linoleic acid have also been linked to increased oxidized LDL. While diets high in monounsaturated fat, like the traditional Greek diet, rich in extra virgin olive oil, produce considerably lower levels of oxidized LDL. Omega-6 is thus bad because the most abundant source of it in our diet is heated vegetable oil, because it's so susceptible to oxidization, because its excessive heating can even create trans fats out of it, because it's a proxy for processed junk food, and because it contributes to oxidized lipids in our blood. But what about whole foods that contain linoleic acid? Are they to be avoided? Well, let's look at a few and see what the research says. Almonds. Both reviled for its linoleic acid and beloved for its easy metamorphosis into low-carb baking meals, the almond assumes a precarious position in the primal community. Because it's much more than a bag of linoleic acid, an almond contains vitamin E, magnesium, prebiotic fiber, and protective polyphenols. Why does this matter and how does it relate to the claimed health effects of excessive linoleic acid? Magnesium deficiency is strongly related to lipid periodization in vivo, the very same thing we're trying to avoid by limiting omega-6 fats. Vitamin E protects the linoleic acid from oxidization. That's why vitamin E tends to come packaged with linoleic acid in nature, because plants don't like their fat oxidizing either. The polyphenols found in almond skin protect LDL from oxidization too, especially when combined with the vitamin E found in the almond meat. Almond prebiotics are also beneficial, leading to a healthier, more diverse intestinal microbiota. Or the Brazil nut, famous repository of so much omega-6. Yeah, okay, but it's also a good source of magnesium, vitamin E, and selenium. We've already covered how magnesium and vitamin E can counter any potential negative effects of the linoleic acid they come packaged with, so let's discuss the selenium in Brazil nuts. One common complaint about linoleic acid is that it depresses the metabolism by interfering with thyroid function. The Ray Peat fans are fairly adamant about this one in particular. However, selenium is one of the most important pro-thyroid minerals in existence, It allows the conversion of the storage thyroid hormone T4 into the active thyroid hormone T3. T3 is what increases metabolism, improves LDL clearance by increasing LDL receptor activity, and generally does most of the positive stuff we associate with the thyroid. And arguably, the best and certainly the easiest way to get enough selenium is by eating a couple of Brazil nuts. A slab of sockeye salmon ain't too shabby a selenium source either. It's no surprise then that a single bout of acute Brazil nut ingestion results in long-term depression of inflammatory markers. Walnuts. Conventional wisdom says walnuts are healthy. Primals worry about linoleic acid intake, and walnuts are loaded with it, along with some ALA. How do they fare in the literature? 
Walnut meals, as in a plate of food that's 75% walnut, reduce the propensity of blood lipids to oxidize. Almond meats had similar effects. Walnuts increase ApoA1, a good lipid marker, and adiponectin, an anti-inflammatory hormone. Walnuts lower ApoB, a rough surrogate for LDL particle number. Seems they fare pretty well. Then you've got pistachios, which, despite their linoleic acid content, 13.5 grams to 100 grams, managed to lower the level of oxidized LDL particles in pistachio eaters by improving lipids and increasing antioxidant status. They're also excellent sources of prebiotics, improving the gut microbiota by a greater degree than even almonds. Hazelnuts, which aren't that high in linoleic acid compared to some of the other nuts, are quite good at reducing LDL oxidation and inflammatory markers in patients with elevated cholesterol. Avocados. The avocado is rather rich in linoleic acid, though most of the fat is monounsaturated, leading some of us to avoid or severely limit its consumption. But research in actual avocado-eating humans paints a different story. An avocado eaten with your meal lowers the postprandial inflammatory response, triglyceride increase, and endothelial dysfunction normally associated with meals. Avocados also lower the number of LDL particles in your blood and significantly, and probably real and causative, risk factors for heart disease. I mean, come on, no guacamole? No diced avocado in your salad? That's not living. It's tough to reconcile this notion of linoleic acid being wholly bad with the overwhelming evidence for the health benefits of nuts and avocados, and I've never really bought into it. Omega-6 intake is strongly associated with age-related macular degeneration, for example, but nut intake is not. And I'm not just talking about epidemiological studies, since those are confounded by the fact that nuts and avocados are generally considered to be healthy foods, and people who eat a lot of them are more likely to do other healthy things, like exercise regularly, drink moderately rather than to excess, eat lots of vegetables, and maintain a healthy weight. The above studies are largely well-controlled with live human subjects, just like you. I'm not saying that you should eat a cup of almonds every day or forsake all vegetables save the avocado. I'm simply saying you needn't fear those foods, for they are undoubtedly healthy foods in reasonable amounts, like most others. Foods. See that word? Fear the isolated, superheated, burnt fatty acids if you like. I don't blame you. But nuts? These are complex nutrient matrices teeming with as-yet-undiscovered bioactive compounds. Yeah, maybe one day some enterprising biohacker will identify, isolate, and quantify the effects of every last micronutrient in every food, and then create the final perfect iteration of Soylent. Until then, the best option we have is to eat food. Whole foods that make us feel and look good, help us perform well and have solid scientific backing. I'd say that's a pretty good option. Linoleic acid in the form of refined vegetable oils is still to be avoided, but I'm not just convinced whole food sources of linoleic acid have the same effect on us. We call out other researchers when they demonize food we like because of a single component, for good reason. We should be careful not to practice nutritional reductionism to justify demonizing a nutrient we don't like. Don't you think? 
Primal listeners, here's a quick health tip for you. Most Primal paleo-oriented health professionals agree that supplementing with pharmaceutical-grade fish oil is an easy way to help you achieve peak health. Omega-3 support a healthy immune system, pain-free flexible joints, brain and nerve health, and serve as nature's anti-inflammatory fats that can help keep chronic inflammation in check. Primal Nutrition's Vital Omegas are the highest quality source of the essential fatty acids DHA and EPA. Concentrated and refined to the highest levels of purity and packaged in easy-to-swallow capsules. Order three bottles and get one free at PrimalBlueprint.com. Is processed meat actually bad for you? While popular media coverage of people following a primal way of eating tends to paint us as carnivorous meat enthusiasts gorging on steaks, bacon, bunless hot dogs, and little else without regard for quality— In truth, we are far more discerning about our choices of meat. We prefer pastured pork and poultry, grass-fed and finished beef, lamb and bison, and generally deplore the conditions of concentrated animal feeding operations, CAFOs, and many of us actively limit processed meats, sausages, bologna, lunch meats, bacon, and the like. You'll often catch us coming down quite hard on processed meat altogether, making a point to distinguish between its health effects and those of unprocessed meat when responding to studies that lump the two together as meat. And as much as we reiterate that observational studies cannot establish causation, processed meat consumption is consistently linked to poor health outcomes. Now, it could very well be that processed meat consumers tend to do other unhealthy things, like not exercise, sleep poorly, eat other processed foods, eat buns with their hot dogs and pizza dough with their pepperoni. Researchers usually try to control for at least some of those variables, but it's impossible to cover every unhealthy aspect of a person who simply doesn't care about their health. You can't quantify everything. That likely explains much of the relationship between processed meat and poor health outcomes. But let's assume for a second that the observational studies do show causative relationships. What could be causing it? Nitrosamines. Nitrosamines are carcinogenic compounds. In animal studies, they're used to reliably give rodent subjects cancer. In observational studies, they're linked to human cancers. Nitrosamines form when nitrites, a common preservative in processed meats, bonds with amino acids, also found in meats. This can occur during the processing of the meat or in the stomachs of those who eat it. Since processed meats contain both nitrites and amino acids, it's kind of a perfect storm. Case closed? Not quite. Another excellent source of nitrates, which convert to nitrites in the body, are most of the vegetables we eat particularly the green ones. In fact, the majority of the nitrates we consume come from vegetables, not bacon or hot dogs or head cheese. Well, except for that German kid I went to grade school with who ate nothing but thick slices of head cheese in between rye bread every day for lunch. Plus, the majority of the neutrosamines we're exposed to come from endogenous formation in our stomachs, not from dietary preformed neutrosamines. And endogenous neutrosamine formation can occur without any processed meat at all. A meal of fish, amino acids, and greens, nitrates, which commensal oral bacteria convert to nitrite, for example, could conceivably increase neutrosamine formation. But I don't think that means fish and greens are unhealthy. 
For a good look at the overall nitrite nitrate issue, check out Chris Kresser's great post from a couple years ago. Poor quality animals. Your average salty slab of beige pseudo meat doesn't come from a pastured animal, obviously. Those Oscar Mayer wieners quivering in the dusky summer light of a million American backyard barbecues? Every bite contains bits and pieces from hundreds of individual animals who never knew what it was like to walk on grass. Even in countries like Italy, whose traditionally cured meats are famous the world over, industrial farming is replacing smaller, more intimate farming. It doesn't matter how many traditional Mediterranean arm hairs you find in your Hoanseale. Unless the package mentions it, or the producer confirms it, the majority of processed meat is made from CAFO cows, pigs, and poultry who ate corn and its oil, and soy and its oil, centric diets, and have imbalanced fatty acid ratios, more omega-6 PUFA, less saturated monounsaturated omega-3 PUFA. That isn't to say it's terrible for you and that you can't mitigate the imbalance by consuming more omega-3s, but it is to say that when you eat processed meats, you're more often than not not eating the best quality meat you can get your hands on. Oxidized lipids, cholesterol, and fatty acids. We all know about the formation of oxidized cholesterol and oxidized fatty acids in foods cooked at high temperatures, and we all know why we should limit these whenever possible. They can be incorporated into our serum cholesterol, increasing its oxidative instability and our oxidative stress, and eventually lead to atherosclerosis. During processing, many processed meats are cooked at temperatures high enough to oxidize the lipids before they even reach your local grocery store. Things like pre-cooked breakfast sausages, hot dogs, and Vienna sausages qualify. Processed meats like mortadella, which is baked at a low heat, and salami, which is cured but not cooked, however, are relatively free of oxidized lipids. As a general rule, the higher the polyunsaturated fat content of the meat, CAFO-fed pork and poultry are especially high in PUFA, the greater the potential for oxidized fats. Sure, Overcooking fresh, unprocessed meat can oxidize lipids too, but you're starting from scratch. The problem with pre-cooked processed meats is that you're starting from behind. A skewed potassium-sodium ratio In the opinion of many researchers, the potassium-sodium ratio is far more important than the absolute amount of sodium a person eats. We can see how processed meats might impact this ratio. With a diet based on unprocessed meat, the ratio is far easier to monitor and optimize. You control the flow of salt, adding as much or as little as you want. Fresh meat itself also has a favorable potassium-sodium ratio, and the rarer you eat the meat, the more potassium-rich the juices become. With the diet based on processed meat, a favorable ratio is difficult to maintain. For one, many processed meats arrive pre-cooked and or with all, potassium-rich, moisture removed, which removes or destroys much of the potassium. And two, most processed meats come heavily salted, further throwing off the ratio. Heterocyclic amines. When meat is directly exposed to high temperature, the amino acids, sugars, and creatine within it react to form heterocyclic amines, HCA, which are mutagenic in animal studies and linked to cancer of the prostate, pancreas, and colon in observational studies. 
Certain processed meats can have significant amount of HCAs, with well-done, almost-burnt bacon and sausage showing more than hot dogs, deli meat, and pepperoni. But fresh meats exposed to high-heat cooking, like rotisserie chicken skin, usually have more. And so, it's a mix of real problems and overblown threats. As you can probably see, not all of these problems are inherent to processed meats, and many of them can be countered with proper precautions. Eat fruits and vegetables, especially alongside your meats, processed or otherwise. Drink tea and coffee. Eat dark chocolate. Consume berries. Enjoy phytonutrient-rich spices like turmeric freely and wantonly. Plant foods often contain protective compounds that inhibit carcinogen formation, like neutrosamines, in the stomach. They're also good sources of potassium. Treat cured meats as condiments that enhance your vegetable and fresh meat dishes, not main courses. This will allow you to use and afford high-quality cuts with better nutrient and fatty acid profiles, since you aren't blowing through them so quickly, and they'll last longer. This will also dampen the potential health impact of poorer quality cuts if you go that route, since you're not eating so much in one sitting. Don't overcook your processed meats. Don't burn bacon. Follow the gentle cooking techniques I recommend wherever possible, if you even need to cook them at all. So, how much processed meat should you be eating? Eh, hard to say. A little bacon with your eggs here... Okay, a lot. Maybe some charcuterie there as an appetizer before a dinner party, some diced pancetta with Brussels sprouts. This is pretty typical among the crowd that reads this blog. I strongly advise against basing your diet on pepperoni, bacon, and hot dogs, even high-quality ones using grass-fed or pastured animals. But I think that goes without saying. In the end, the majority of primal eaters are not basing their meals on processed meat. That said... There's really something therapeutic about an occasional plate of perfectly crispy, thick-cut bacon, isn't there? Mmm. 